Today from the Global Lane, secret agents of change spying on Americans, manipulating elections worldwide and on the home front. They view themselves as at the vanguard of a cultural revolution here in our own country and spreading that abroad. So it's no longer defending the U.S. Constitution. Time for TikTok, but not for faith. American preteens on track to abandon Christian biblical values. When we look at what they believe about the Bible, truth, about the means to eternal salvation, about how to define and pursue success and the purpose of life, in all of those areas, they're not doing well. King Charles Lloyd Austin, high profile hospitalizations and the root cause of cancer. Every day we see younger and younger, more and more people being diagnosed with cancer and it's inflammation that is driving this ship. And more U.S. tax dollars for Ukraine? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. U.S. intelligence agencies doing the dirty work of the deep state. They've manipulated and interfered in elections around the world. So what's the likelihood they'll do it this campaign season right here on the U.S. home front? Michael Waller is senior strategy analyst at the Center for Security Policy. He worked for the CIA in Central America. He's author of the new book, Big Intel, how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. Michael, before we discuss your book, I've got to ask you about a report out this week on Substack that alleges credible sources contend in 2016, CIA Director John Brennan had foreign allies known as the Five Eyes spy on 26 Trump associates to trigger the Russian collusion hoax. So if true, that would be an unprecedented illegal domestic election interference action on the part of the CIA and FBI. So do you believe they did that? What are your thoughts? Yes, I do believe they did it because I heard indicators to that same effect years ago, just couldn't prove it. The, the, what the CIA did was they got around the federal law, which, which bans the CIA from spying on Americans at home and from uh, getting involved in politics. But it doesn't ban the CIA from what they call intelligence sharing. That means collecting intelligence gathered by other countries. So, so they could ask our allies, like the British or the Australians or even the Canadians, to spy on American citizens and then share, in quotes, that intelligence with the CIA. That way they're getting around the law. Well, and then they use that, right, to uh, conduct the crossfire hurricane uh, effort. Now, reporters Michael Schellenberger, uh, Matt Taibbi, and Alex Gutenberg report a 10-inch binder exists that contains the raw intel from that surveillance effort. The info was ordered declassified by President Trump before he left office. So who do you think possesses that binder now, and why hasn't the information gone public? I don't know who possesses it, but if you look at us, uh, there was an executive order that Barack Obama signed the first day he was president, which was called the Presidential Records Act. And that allowed him and his designees to destroy a lot of presidential material. We don't know if this binder was destroyed or if somebody has it, but we, we do know that one of Obama's first acts as president was to arrange for the destruction of evidence in his administration before it all began. Okay, well, let's get to your book now. J. Edgar Hoover was a staunch anti-communist. Both the FBI and CIA fought the good fight for the USA during the Cold War. So how did these agencies become politicized? How did we arrive at this point in our country? Well, Hoover had the FBI. He viewed his job as to serve his president. So he would do whatever any president of either party asked him to do. 
So he did have the I spy on Democrats and Republicans on behalf of Democrat or Republican presidents, as well as as well as what for what he thought was anybody involved in domestic subversion. There were no laws against that then, but there but there have been since. His view, though, was that the United States is a fundamentally Christian country whose Christian ethics have to be preserved at all costs and who the communists and the anarchists and a lot of the newcomers, radicals coming in from Europe after World War I, were trying to overthrow. So he viewed the, 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 uh, his role in what became the FBI as to defend not just American law, but the American way. Nobody believes in the American way anymore at the top levels of the FBI and the CIA. Well, have communists infiltrated the FBI and the CIA? Well, they, they, the FBI was pretty impervious to it as long as Hoover was alive. The, uh, the CIA, we had a problem because during World War II, setting up an intelligence service that we didn't have against the Nazis, uh, while Bill Donovan in the Office of Strategic Services recruited a whole lot of communists and Soviet agents. They were later purged. Many went into the State Department. Some went back into the CIA. But more importantly, what came out of it was something that Hoover was warning about all along. And that was a Soviet-sponsored operation that became known as the Frankfurt School in Frankfurt, Germany, that was imported to the United States to develop critical theory, ways to look at the world to smash you know, the Judeo-Christian ethic of our country, of our society. They view themselves as what the CIA calls agents of change or secret agents of change. They view themselves as at the vanguard of a cultural revolution here in our own country and spreading that abroad. So it's no longer defending the U.S. Constitution. So the FBI itself has said that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a core value for the FBI, meaning in the cultural Marxist way, and that it ranks exactly on par with the U.S. Constitution. So you can see how they're changing our society from within. And they when you have somebody like Chuck Schumer, who warned Donald Trump in 2017 that the intelligence communities have six ways from Sunday to get you if you try to rein them in, even Chuck Schumer was admitting seven years ago that these things are not under control anymore. Then what do we do about it? There's a lot we can do. As, as individual citizens this election year, our sheriffs are our last line of defense. And we never think of our sheriffs, but we vote for our sheriffs every election year as our chief local law enforcement officers. They have the power to to keep the FBI and other federal agents from abusing the public in their jurisdictions. Usually they're, they're, they enable them by deputizing federal agents to enforce state laws. The, the, the sheriffs can stop that, and many of them can and many of them do, but they need public support and public understanding of the issue. That's the first one. Second off is if, if Donald Trump is elected again, he needs to come in with a team that knows what it's doing, top to bottom, that has executive orders written, has legislation written, so that it can be submitted to Congress and enshrined into law, and then repeal all the Obama and Biden executive orders that empowered this deep state against us. Okay, the book is Big Intel, How the CIA and FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. Michael Waller, thanks for joining us and providing those insights. We appreciate it. Great to be with you. Do you have a preteen in your household? What do they believe? Well, new research from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University found that 8 to 12-year-olds are on track to abandon biblical Christianity. Only 21% believe turning to the Bible is the best way to determine right from wrong. Well, here to explain more of the findings is Cultural Research Center Director, uh, he's Director of Research, George Barna. 
George, this appears to be a troubling uh, trend. What else did you discover in your research? Well, as we looked at all this, really what we're trying to understand is how are children doing in terms of developing the foundations for a biblical worldview? We talk about seven particular beliefs called the seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview. There are five in particular here where children really are in jeopardy when we look at what they believe about the Bible, what they believe about absolute truth, about the means to eternal salvation, about how to define and pursue success and the purpose of life. In all of those areas, they're not doing well. And when we compare them to teenagers and young adults, in other words, if we backtrack in terms of age groups, we find that today's young children are doing worse than their predecessors. And we already know that their predecessors are, uh, do not have a biblical worldview. So we're looking at a young group of people that is not moving toward thinking like Jesus, which is important because that's the only way that eventually you're going to be able to act like Jesus because you do what you believe. Well, what's the cause then, George, of this biblical abandonment for preteens? Well, there's no single cause that we can point to, but there are a number of things that certainly contribute to that. One of those would be the enduring and negative impact of media messages upon children. The media continue to be the most impactful source of worldview development in our country. Secondly, we can look at the fact that only 4% of parents have a biblical worldview. They don't perceive themselves as being the ones who are responsible for developing the worldview of their children. Thirdly, we can look at the fact that most Christian churches these days neither prioritize children in ministry nor focus on worldview development when they have the attention of children within the church environment. So you add those and a few other things together, what the church, excuse me, what the schools are doing, the influence of peers and so forth. And so it's a big turnaround that's got to happen. And parents need to be leading that turnaround, but it's not foremost in their minds to do so. Well, I was going to say, I'm sure you weren't surprised by these results because I know you've discussed this for quite a few years now about this trend of adults moving away from the Christian faith, declining church attendance, decline in moral clarity, biblically-based principles. So what then is at the heart of this for the parents? Yeah, I mean, this was all part of a book that I just put out called Raising Spiritual Champions, the idea of which is to get parents invested in the worldview development of their children. And in order to do that, I talk about how there's several things that they've got to engage with. Number one is they've got to have a plan. This doesn't happen spontaneously. Number two, they have to know what beliefs they're going to focus on and interact with their children on regularly in order to get them to the right place. Thirdly, they've got to be thinking through how do we convert those right beliefs into right behavior? And then fourthly, how do you evaluate how your child is doing? What's the parent's role in that? And what can they do based on the different evaluations that they may come up with? There was a bright spot here. You found a higher percentage of preteens than teens believe that Jesus is the way to eternal salvation. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, the good news is that as children have been looking at this and evaluating the opportunities that they have for addressing the sin issue in their life, 
many of them are at least aware of the fact that Jesus may be their best answer and is their best answer. The challenge, of course, is that, again, when we look at it generationally, what we see is when children reach those teen years, there tends to be a loss in terms of the proportion of young people who ultimately decide that Jesus is the answer to the sin problem. We see that with today's teenagers, and we're hoping that doesn't happen with young children, but we have to be prepared for that pattern continuing. Okay, quickly then, I know you touched upon this, but what should our churches and parents do then about this? Well, recognize that disciples make disciples and that it's the parent's primary responsibility to be helping their child to become a disciple. And so having that plan, as I talked about a few moments ago, but also recognizing that as the chief discipler of their children, they've got to invest in the relationship, they've got to understand that their own behavior is huge in this process. So they've got to be a great role model. They have to know how they're planning to take their child into this process of becoming a disciple of Jesus. And they've got to be invested in consistent Socratic dialogue with their children, not beating them over the head with biblical principles, but asking questions of their children about what they believe, why they believe it, what kind of lifestyle that's going to produce, what kind of person they're going to become if they embrace certain beliefs. It's all about time and relationship, is it not? People could uh, read more, find out more by reading your book, Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. George Barna, thank you for sharing with us. We appreciate you. Thank you, Gary. The world recently learned that King Charles of England has cancer. Although the monarch was treated earlier for an enlarged prostate, Buckingham Palace assured the public that Charles does not suffer from prostate cancer. Last month, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was forced to disclose the reason he went missing for a few days. He did suffer from prostate cancer and underwent surgery. So why does it seem we're hearing more about prostate cancer these days? Who is mostly at risk? What can be done about it? Well, Dr. Nathan Goodyear is medical director of Brio Medical, a holistic integrative cancer healing center in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Goodyear, it's good to have you with us. So tell us, although King Charles does not have prostate cancer, he did suffer from an enlarged prostate. How common is that for a man of his age? He's 75. Yeah, when you look at men over the age of 65, you're going to be able to take a, take a bet to the bank that almost every man there over 75% is going to have some degree of enlarged prostate. And in fact, when you carry that, because benign prostatic hypertrophy is a benign condition, but if you look at men over the age of 80, almost invariably 75 plus percent are going to have some degree of prostate cancer. Prostate cancer and benign prostatic hypertrophy are different. When you look at uh, prostate cancer, prostate cancer in the older gentleman is going to also behave differently than prostate cancer in younger men. So really looking at those three as different um, prisms, if you will, or different angles of a prostate problem, one's benign, one's aggressive, that's the young, and one is more uh, indolent, slower growing, and that tends to be what occurs in older gentlemen. Well, an enlarged prostate, uh, can that indicate health issues elsewhere? Uh, how often does an enlarged prostate accompany, say, bladder or colon cancer? 
Well, if you look at it as an indication of poor health, it absolutely is. Because when the prostate enlarges, it's classically an inflammatory process. And when you look at chronic disease of aging, that is a process driven by chronic inflammation. You know, it's really interesting. More and more, we're talking about this increased incidence of cancer that we're seeing everywhere. We can't deny it. It's like 1984, where we're being, being told to deny our eyes and our ears. But every day, we see younger and younger, more and more people being diagnosed with cancer. And it's inflammation that is driving this ship. It's inflammation that is a sea that's raising the tides that is all these incidents of prostate cancer that we're seeing. Well, I want to talk to you about that again in a, in a moment here, but uh, back to prostate cancer. Many men are unaware they have it. There are about 300,000 new cases each year in this country. About 35,000 men here in the U.S. die from prostate cancer annually. That makes it about the second leading cause of cancer death in men. What causes it? What are the signs? Yeah, so when you look at what causes cancer, it's multifactorial. We used to think that it was a one-hit hypothesis, so a, a genetic defect that we inherited. Now it's really coming into the arena of ideas that what it is, it's an adaptation of cells to an inhospitable environment, whether that be metabolic dysfunction, inflammation, toxins. All of these things are pushing together to drive the environment within our body. Everybody focuses on environment out, but we're talking within. This is driving an environment that's forcing cells to change. This forces immune change, and this is why we're seeing such an increased incidence of cancer. Just real quick, there was a study published in the Lancet Journal called the Prospective Urban and Rural Epidemiology Study that showed that in high-income countries, cancer is the number one cause of mortality in adults. Why? Lifestyle. It is lifestyle that is driving this inflammation, this environment within our bodies, that is precipitating this this rise in cancer. And many doctors recommend regular PSA tests for men over the age of 50. What do you think? Is PSA an accurate indicator? I think PSA is a good screening tool. You can see a lot of men with advanced prostate cancer and their PSA will actually be normal. So you have to be very careful about any biomarker for cancer. If it's PSA for prostate, uh, CEA for colorectal, Every biomarker, every test has an upside and a downside. So I think it's good for screening, but you can't take it to the bank for diagnostic purposes for sure. Okay, so back to what we discussed earlier. What's the best way to prevent prostate cancer, other cancers? Yeah, it's lifestyle. You know, when you look at this process in, in the scientific literature on PubMed, they're using this word called reprogramming. We're starting to understand that what's what's happening in cancer is a reprogramming of cells to adapt to its environment. Well, if cancer cells can be reprogrammed, we can reprogram them back. And it's lifestyle that allows us to do that through good nutrition, eating real food. Twinkies, ding-dongs, and Cokes does not define as food. We're talking fruits. We're talking vegetables. We're talking good sleep good relationships. We're talking about exercise. All of these things build an environment. We were created to conduct in those arenas. One of the things that is really important to me is as physicians, you know, we're hope, healer, teacher, and servant. All of those are characteristics of Christ. And as physicians, we sow. We sow seeds or we sow weeds. We sow fear or we sow hope. We sow creation or we sow counterfeit, or we sow life and we sow death. And you see this throughout medicine. You see those sowing seeds of life, 
is those sowing seeds of death. And more and more as I've been doing this, I'm starting to see that cancer is something that has much more of a spiritual connotation than we ever could have thought. Dr. Goodyear, thank you for being with us, setting us straight today on this important health issue. We appreciate it. You bet. The power's in the hand of the individual. After days of debate, the U.S. Senate passed a $95 billion foreign aid package for Israel, Taiwan, and Ukraine. It may be months before members of the House of Representatives vote on the bill. They may not vote on it at all, and for good reason. Folks, $61 billion of the aid is slated for Ukraine. And although helping an American ally beat back a Russian invasion is a worthy cause, our European allies need to step up their contribution. There also needs to be a detailed accounting for taxpayer dollars already sent to Kyiv. According to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, by late September 2023, the United States spent $113 billion on Ukraine. Congress allowed the U.S. Department of Defense the flexibility to decide how best to use some of those funds. And that requires trusting a department that failed to account for $1.9 trillion in lost DOD funds. And should we trust Ukraine? It's one of the most corrupt countries in the world, on par with Kenya, El Salvador, and Mexico. Makes you wonder how many of those weapons are ending up on the black market. Maybe the Taliban could send the Ukrainians some of the billions of dollars in military hardware left behind when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. But maybe not. Some of those have already turned up in places like Pakistan and Kashmir. Folks, this foreign aid funding must be separated, not tied, to the other countries or issues. $14 billion in aid for Israel is greatly needed, and the $5 billion for Taiwan protection is crucial in light of Chinese military aggression. But there should be no linkage to the border or any other funding issue. If a member opposes funding for Ukraine, they should be allowed to vote against a separate Ukraine bill without jeopardizing aid to Israel. The same goes for Taiwan. All are different situations. And at a time when funds are needed here to house homeless veterans and meet other needs, there must be an accounting for dollars already sent. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN and NRB channels, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, Rumble, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.